Well, last week we saw Jesus perform the miracle of feeding 5,000 men. What began with five loaves and two fishes concluded with thousands of full bellies and 12 disciples, each with his own personal take-home basket. We saw in this miracle that while bread and fish can feed a man's body, only the eternal word from the Father can feed a man's soul. And unlike bread and fish which perish in the using, the teaching of Christ is imperishable, unlimited, and infinitely valuable, for it shows us the way to God. Now, uh, in every miracle that Jesus performs, there is both a sign and a thing that is signified by that sign. There is always a sign and a thing signified. Miracles are what we might call living parables that have a surface or external meaning, which is usually pretty obvious, multiplying loaves, calming the sea, casting out a demon, etc. That's, that's the sign, that's the surface thing. But then only those with true living faith, what Jesus calls eyes to see and ears to hear, can understand the significance of those signs. As the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.6, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. In other words, you could be standing in front of Jesus, listening to him teach. You could be like the disciples, watching him heal the sick, raise the dead, walk upon the waves, and yet still not recognize who he is. So far in Mark's gospel, nobody understands who Jesus is. They might recognize him as a great prophet, as a great teacher, as a mighty worker of miracles, but none of them see that this is God in the flesh. Our text this morning continues this same theme and gives us three different groups of people who encounter Jesus but uh, continue to not see him as he is. So a broad outline of our text. In verses 45 to 52, the disciples continue to not understand. Their heart is hardened. In verses 53 to 56, the crowds continue to seek Jesus but only for their bodily or physical needs. And then in verses 1 to 13 of chapter 7, the scribes and Pharisees continue to make themselves look silly by arguing with God. So uh, starting in verse 45, let's walk through our text together. Uh, Verses 45 to 46 say, And straightway he constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go to the other side before unto Bethsaida while he sent away the people. And when he had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. So Jesus has just fed the sheep. Remember, he is the good shepherd, Psalm 23. He makes them to sit down. He uh, stills the waters. He makes them to lie down in green grass. So he's done all that. He's fed the sheep. He's taught them. He's given them food. And now he's going to send them away. And the purpose for sending his disciples on ahead of him is so that he can be alone to pray. Jesus wants to be alone to pray. In that Jesus is divine, he, of course, has no need to pray. He is the one who answers prayers. But by this human action, we are given an example of what is most needful for us humans. We need solitude. We need elevation. We need quietness of mind. We need sanctuary. When God talked to Moses, where was it? It was upon a mountain, Exodus 3. When God talked to Elijah, where was it? 
It was upon a mountain, 1 Kings 19. What is the tabernacle? What is the temple but symbolic mountains? They are the high points, the high places where sacrifice is offered, where heaven meets earth, and where God comes down to speak with us. So what Jesus does here physically in ascending the mountain, all of us are called to do spiritually, right? You must see these things spiritually. This is why Paul says in Colossians 3, seek those things which are above. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. So this is what Jesus is teaching us by his actions. He sends away everyone and departs into a mountain to pray. You send away the crowd of thoughts. You put off the carnal man and you put on the Lord Jesus. You ascend with him to prayer. Continuing verses 47 to 50, it says, And when even was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea, and he alone on the land. And he saw them toiling in rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them. And about the fourth watch of the night, which is about uh, 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., that's Roman time, he cometh unto them, walking upon the sea, and would have passed by them. But when they saw him walking upon the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit, and cried out. For they all saw him and were troubled, and immediately he talked with them and said unto them, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. So Jesus is alone on the mountain to pray, and he is there from the evening when he sends away the crowds until the early morning hours. And when the fourth watch had come, that is the last watch before morning light, he sees the disciples toiling in rowing. The wind is fighting them, and so he cometh unto them. It says in Psalm 102, 19, the Lord hath looked down from the height of his sanctuary, and therefore Jesus, looking down upon his struggling disciples, descends the mountain, and walks upon the sea. Who is this man that has such power? Well, a pious Jew who knew the scriptures would recognize that walking upon the sea is something that only God does. It says in Job 9, which Joe read earlier, He alone spreadeth out the heavens and treadeth upon the waves of the sea. He alone treadeth upon the waves of the sea. Job 41 later says that God draws out the great sea dragon with a hook and plays with Leviathan as with a bird. Psalm 74, 13 says he breaks the heads of the dragons in the waters. So who is Jesus? Who is Jesus if God alone treadeth upon the waves of the sea? He is, of course, the Lord. He is the creator. He is the one who plays with Leviathan, who treats the devil as a little bird. And if walking upon the sea was not enough to make this plain, Mark uh, draws our attention to two other things that reveal Jesus' divine identity. Uh, First, it says in verse 48 that Jesus would have passed by them. It's a curious thing to say. Jesus would have passed by them. He's going towards them. He would have passed by them. That is, Just as the glory of God was revealed and passed by Moses on the mountain, and Elijah as well, so also Jesus passes by his disciples. Do you see what is going on here? This is another uh, disciples on the mountain kind of thing. And whereas uh, God said to Moses, thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen, to the disciples, God reveals his very face. It is the face of Jesus Christ. So this is the irony that is weaved through the entirety of Mark's gospel. Uh, Although they see the physical face of Jesus, they do not perceive that this is the glory of God. 
That kind of perception requires a different kind of sight, which we call the light of faith. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is why when people, maybe they've been in church their whole life, but then suddenly they say, the lights came on. (laughs) Something happened. You perceived, you understood that this is not just an impressive ancient Jew that we're reading about. Uh, This is the God who created you. (laughs) This is the God who is everywhere, who is omnipotent, and that is the one who delights to save you, if you will, look to him by faith. So the disciples don't get this. At this point in Jesus' ministry, the disciples see they're hanging out with God for three and a half years, and they do not understand that they're hanging out with God. They're looking at the face of God, but they don't even realize it. Second detail that Mark draws our attention to is what Jesus says to the disciples before he gets into the boat. So in verse 50, Jesus says, be of good cheer. It is I, be not afraid. Uh, This phrase, it is I, in Greek is ego eimi, I am, which should remind us of God's personal name, I am that I am. So Jesus is uh, hinting at, if not outright revealing, that he is the great I am. He is the one who revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush, and he's revealing himself to the disciples, the very face of God, disciples looking him in the face, but they do not perceive this. The disciples are like Eliphaz, one of Job's worthless counselors, who says, The spirit passed before my face, but I could not discern the form thereof. The disciples are Eliphaz at this point. Continuing in verses 51 to 52, it says, And he went up unto them into the ship, and the wind ceased. And they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure and wondered, for they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. Notice that amazement and wonder is not the same thing as having true and saving faith. You can be impressed by the miracles of Jesus. You can be impressed by his teaching and power and yet have a heart as hard as Pharaoh. The disciples then are in dangerous territory. Like Pharaoh, they have seen signs and wonders, many more than Pharaoh saw, and they have seen those signs and wonders firsthand. They have, as Hebrews 6, 5 says, tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. But despite this close and upfront experience, Mark says, they considered not the loaves. They considered not the loaves. That is, they failed to perceive that Jesus is God when he multiplied loaves and fishes. And now again, they failed to perceive that Jesus is God when he walks upon the sea. The exhortation for us then is summed up by Hebrews 3.12. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. It's very easy to be real familiar with the church, real familiar with Jesus. There's a reason uh, our worship service is structured as it is because so much of Christianity in America treats God as their buddy. <laughs> like we're just, we're just, you know, familiar like that. When really, if God revealed to you just a little bit of his glory, uh, we would all fall down on our face as one dead. Okay. And this is more what worship should be like on Sundays. Uh, we fall down on our face as one dead. And Jesus says to us, be of good cheer. 
it is I. Right? This is the structure of our worship service. So take heed lest you become too familiar and your heart is hardened to who God actually is and what God is actually requiring of you to do. Many people, many people have found themselves amazed and impressed by Jesus. Amazed and impressed even by what the Christian religion has wrought in the Western world. Right? Christianity, there's no iPhone without Christianity. Right? There's no air conditioning without Christianity. These things are manifest. But uh, admiration and respect for Jesus is not the same thing as true belief. It is not the same thing as love for God. So take heed, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. In verses 53 to 56, we see now the crowds coming again to Jesus for healing. This itself is a multiplication of sorts. It's a multiplication of what we saw back in chapter 5. So remember, uh, they got into a ship, they came to the other side, and they were met with a demoniac running at him, and Jesus cast the demons out, and he is delivered. Well, now they get back in the ship, they go to the other side, same thing happens. But now, it's not just one crazy demoniac, it's a whole bunch of people. It's enormous crowds. So verses uh, 53 and 56 say, And when they had passed over, they came into the land of Gennesaret and drew to the shore. And when they were come out of the ship, straightway they knew him, and ran through the whole region round about, and began to carry about in beds those that were sick, where they heard he was. And whithersoever he entered, into villages or cities or country, they laid the sick in the streets, and besought him that they might touch, if it were, the border or the tassels of his garment. And many as touched him were made whole. This section sets up a contrast for us. A contrast between the masses who are sick and know it, and therefore go to Jesus to make them whole, and the Pharisees, who think they are quite healthy. They think they are clean and holy, and therefore they criticize Jesus for not washing his hands. So one group knows and feels they are physically sick, and therefore they receive physical healing. The other group, the scribes and Pharisees, are physically clean, but spiritually they are sick and don't realize it. If you think about it, both of these groups have the same problem in that they do not recognize what their true need is. Physical healing is great. It's something we pray for. It's wonderful. But what these people really need is salvation. They need to have their sins forgiven. Washing your hands before you eat is a good and fine tradition. Uh, It's a tradition in my home, I think. Uh, But washing your heart is infinitely more important. Like the disciples, both of these groups see the sign, but not the thing signified. They see Christ's power, but not his purpose for revealing that power. So as we get into uh, chapter 7 now, verses 1 to 13, we launch into a debate over tradition and authority. What is the place of tradition in relation to God's word? This section, we could break it up into two. Uh, So in verses 1 to 5, the Pharisees are going to pose a question to Jesus, a criticism. And then in verses 6 to 13, Jesus is going to give his response. So verses 1 to 5, the Pharisees' question. Then came together unto him the Pharisees and certain of the scribes which came from Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is about 90 miles from where they are. So they had to make quite a journey to get there. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say with unwashed hands, they found fault. 
for the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands oft or diligently, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be which they have received to hold, as the washing of cups and pots, brazen vessels, and even of tables. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashing hands? The theological position of the Pharisees was that Israel was called by God to be a holy people. That is true. But because of their unholiness, God had judged them. This also is true insofar as it goes. However, uh, the Pharisees, uh, they're, they're kind of the orthodox uh, Christians, uh, orthodox Jews uh, at this time. Uh, they erred in two major places, as Jesus will show. So first, uh, they did not understand the nature of true holiness. They equated external cleanliness with internal cleanliness, and therefore only had the appearance of godliness without the substance. Their second error was that they misapplied the law of God. They took a true commandment that was unique to the priests at the tabernacle and then applied it to the whole nation. They universalized it and enforced it as if it had a divine warrant. So this a tradition of washing hands before eating appears to have its roots in Exodus 30. So I'll read this section for you. Uh, this is an instruction to Aaron and his sons. For Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet in the bronze laver. When they go into the tabernacle of the congregation, they shall wash with water that they die not. Or when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn offering made by fire unto the Lord, so they shall wash their hands and their feet that they die not. And it shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his seed throughout their generations. So here you see there's a group of priests who when they go to do a specific ministry at the tabernacle must wash hands and feet. So it's certainly no sin to wash your hands or your feet or your whole body before you eat. But it is a great sin to treat a voluntary custom as if it is equal to the Ten Commandments. And what Jesus exposes in the Pharisees is that human beings care far more about looking righteous than being righteous. We care a lot more about looking godly than being godly. Mankind, all of us, have this incessant need to justify ourselves in the eyes of others. And so we often invent laws and customs and regulations that give us the appearance of godliness without ourselves being godly. So let's watch how Jesus uh, exposes this in verses 6 to 13. Jesus answered and said unto them, Well hath Isaiah, or Esaias, prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, then he quotes from Isaiah 29, 13. This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men, as the washing of pots and cups and many other such like things ye do. And he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. For Moses said, Honor thy father and thy mother. And whoso curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, if a man shall say to his father, it is korban, that is to say a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. And ye suffer him, that is, you don't let him, do anything for his father or his mother. 
therefore making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which ye have delivered, and many such like things ye do. Jesus goes for the jugular here. He minces no words with the Pharisees. And you'll notice he meets them on their own turf. He meets them on their own turf by quoting the authority that they claim, whether by oral or written tradition, they claim to hold in high esteem Moses. So he's the highest authority if you are a Pharisee. So Jesus says, all right, Moses is your highest authority. Let's go with Moses. Moses said, honor thy father and thy mother. But then you'll notice Jesus stops there. He does not give the full citation of the commandment, which is that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. So instead of giving the promise for keeping the fifth commandment, what does Jesus give them? He gives them the curse, the penalty for breaking the fifth commandment, which, as you know, also comes from Moses, Exodus 21, 17. And he that curseth his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. So Jesus is giving them two witnesses from their highest authority, Moses. And then he proceeds to demonstrate that they are guilty of breaking God's law, and according to Moses, their highest authority, they should be put to death. The example Jesus gives to hang them is that instead of providing financial support to their aging parents, they write it off as korban. It's a Hebrew word that just means a gift or some kind of sacrificial offering. In other words, they have the wealth to support their needy parents, but they give it to their buddies at the temple instead, using God as their kind of tax shelter. Why they can't help Uh, Why can't they help their father and mother? Uh, You ask them, why can't they give mother and father honor? Because they must honor God above them. You can see how holy this sounds. And Jesus says to them, you deserve to die for this. Not only are they breaking the fifth commandment by not giving their parents financial help, they are blaspheming the name of God by invoking him as their excuse. So Jesus is hanging them by their own principles. If Moses is the highest authority in your tradition, well, according to Moses, you deserve to die. This is the threat, this is the warning that Jesus gives them when he says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. This quotation from Isaiah is a prophecy of Jerusalem's destruction. That's the context in which this passage is taken from. And just as God destroyed Jerusalem for idolatry in 586, Babylon Babylon came and burned Jerusalem to the ground, so also the Son of Man will destroy Jerusalem again in 70 AD. Why will Jesus destroy Jerusalem? Because in vain do they worship God, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. I'll close with this. There are, uh, there's a multitude of applications we can make from this passage, um, and we're going to continue to look at this story uh, more in a couple weeks, but I want to limit myself to just one application for us this morning. We are presently uh, governed by Pharisees. We are presently governed by secular Pharisees, hypocrites, because there is still a little Pharisee inside all of us. Satan was the original Pharisee, He wanted to make the rules instead of following God's rules. 
And ever since Adam and Eve heeded the voice of the serpent, we also have been inventing and enforcing false versions of godliness, false versions of righteousness, false versions of cleanliness. Think about what we just went through as a nation, really as a world. What were the COVID restrictions but militant secular Pharisaism? Our government worships itself. They think they are God. They have their prophets. They have Fauci. They have the CDC as their divine lawgiver. And remember, if you did not sanitize sufficiently or mask up or keep your six feet of distance, you were not keeping the laws of cleanliness. You were deemed unclean, cannot enter. Remember, they shut down churches, they locked up pastors, they prevented family members from seeing their loved ones in the hospital, giving them honor before they die, and they prevented this all in the name of public safety, because they care about your well-being. This is the hypocrisy that we voted for. This is the hypocrisy that we are ruled by. They represent our hearts well. God makes it very clear in scripture that when you worship idols, when you worship anything other than God, you get the bondage of bureaucracy. Proverbs 28.2 says, when a land transgresses, it has many rulers. If we as a nation continue to harden our hearts against God, we will continue to be governed by Pharisees. The kind of Pharisees that Jesus denounces later saying, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So if you don't want to be ruled by Pharisees, we must start by crucifying the Pharisee in our own hearts. It is really not hard to spot a Pharisee out there. It is very hard to kill the Pharisee inside of you. But this is what Christ calls us to do. Our old man deserves to die. All of us have broken all of the commandments. And this is exactly why God came to earth in Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus is walking on water, healing the sick, and arguing with the Pharisees. It is because he loves them. Jesus loves his hard-hearted disciples, and eventually he is going to open their eyes. Jesus loves the crowds that are coming to him for healing like sheep without a shepherd, and eventually he will save also their souls. Did you know that Jesus even loves the Pharisees? And he is going to take their best and brightest, a man named Saul of Tarshish, and turn him into an apostle. So while it may seem bleak out there, and it really is, And it also seems wicked in your own heart, which all of us must fight against. Jesus has the power to make us actually holy, actually righteous. And that is what his death and resurrection offers to all. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, amen. Amen. Let me pray. Father, you are just in all of your ways. And you have been exceedingly merciful to us as a people. God, we uh, do not know our right hand from our left. We do not know a boy from a girl. We do not know what marriage is anymore. We do not know what life is in a woman. Father, we confess that these are our sins, our problems. We confess this on behalf of our nation and ask that you would turn us to you. If you give us a heart to love you, if you take out the stony, Pharaoh-like heart in us, then we will be saved. And so we ask on behalf of our nation, 
upon our neighbors, upon our family members who do not know you, that you would break that uh, unbelief and give us true belief, true and saving faith. We pray this in Jesus' name, and amen.